All right, if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 21. Uh, we'll be in the first uh, 19 verses. Um, we're continuing to look at the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, it's something that, uh, unfortunately, I think because of the church calendar, sometimes we can, we can reduce it to one day a year. And Easter's really kind of where we celebrate the resurrection, and that's, that's, not, that's not the only place where the resurrection's important. It's actually important all of the Sundays, all of the Mondays, all of the Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays of our lives. And so we want to be a people who walk in newness of life because that is where sin and death is defeated is in the resurrection. You cannot, we cannot forget that. We cannot let that go. And so we need to be a church that is cognizant of that every single week if, uh, to the best of our ability. And so this week, we're going to look at uh, the third time that Jesus shows up to the disciples in the resurrection. And so remember from last week, the question that we open with, if you had abandoned Jesus in his darkest hour, how would you expect him to treat you the first time he saw you after your abandonment? Well, we know what he would do, right? He would show up through the locked door of your fear and the hauntedness of your mistake and in the midst of all of your brokenness and in the midst of all of your sin and he would say these words to you, you're gonna burn in hell. What he'd say? No, it's not what the scripture says. So I don't know why any of us would say that to anyone. But what he would say to you is this, peace be with you. I'm here to make you new again. And remember what he did. He did this interesting thing that has befuddled theologians for a long, long time. It says he breathed the Holy Spirit on them. And everybody's all up in arms about, well, what about Pentecost? Maybe it's a foreshadow of this, that, and the other. Well, what we do know that it means is that they were being recreated. It was an act of recreation. It was to take us all the way back to Genesis 1 when, when God would breathe into that mass of dirt and call it Adam, give it life. So he was giving them newness of life, which we know that the resurrection is about. And he gave them a mission. Remember, he hearkened back to his prayer when he said, hey, I want you guys to be one with me and the Father, and I want you to do the things and care about the things that we care about and do. And remember, we've said this many times before. What is God's will? What's that, Susan? To be with his people, redeemed. Susan's not a very good Presbyterian. She spoke out in church. We'll deal with her later. Uh, <laughs> it's okay to speak out when I ask a question. They're not all rhetorical. But it's to be with his people through the redemption that comes by Christ alone, through faith alone, and grace alone. Amen? See, we get all tangled up and we're like, I don't know what God's will for my life is. Yeah, you do. His will for your life is that you would be near him to be in his presence and enjoy him forever, to be able to worship in spirit and truth. That is his will for you. Where you work, who you marry, those are secondary issues that, by the way, should support the primary issue. For those of you who are not currently married, don't you dare marry someone who will not encourage you in every way, shape, or form to that reality. Do not take a job if you don't currently have one, if you're pursuing a career that will not allow you to be able to do exactly that. Now, did I say you could only take a job in the church? No, hear me. Sometimes that's the worst place to take a job if you want to stay a Christian. I'm not on the, me and Whitney aren't on the same ledge. There's no ledge. We're all okay. But do pray for us. 
So it's very important that we recognize what God's will is and never lose sight of that and remember that he is, he is tarrying on sending Jesus back because he wants the family to get bigger and he wants us to understand that even better. And so when he steps through that door and recreates these men, it's this beautiful moment and even better if you remember. He comes back eight days later because there was one who wasn't there. You know who he is? Old disbelieving Thomas, who said, I will never believe, never, unless I see something. So Jesus shows up, as it were, right after Thomas says those words, and he says, well, get ready to believe, boy. Peace be with you. And he offers him his nail-scarred hands and his pierced side, just as he had done with the previous disciples, by the way. He wouldn't do anything new. And he says, don't disbelieve, Thomas, but believe makes him one of the ones who will proclaim his name. And so what we see is Jesus being so gracious and so kind to even come back for the one who was missing. Where did we hear that before? If you know anything about that, Luke chapter 15, all those beautiful parables about the love that the Father has for even the one who goes away, even the one who said, I wish you were dead so I could have all my stuff now. He comes for him. And we're going to see that again here. The one who shot his mouth off the biggest, who sinned, by the way, far more than any of you could, me included. He said three times over, I do not know this man. And he even used some Galilean cuss words that we don't know anymore. And he wanted to make sure that he was not in any way, shape, or form associated with the one who was about to be crucified because he feared for his own life. Now remember, Peter had in boldness said, even if they all fall away, those other 11 goofballs, I will stand with you. In fact, I will die with you. And some servant girl says, aren't you a Galilean? Around some campfire with a bunch of ne'er-do-wells, and he's scared out of his mind. Gives, a, gives up Jesus three times over. If you remember, Jesus told him, that's exactly what you're going to do. So let me say to you, you can never ever sin as much as if you remember Abram who messed up the covenant about as bad as you can mess it up. Remember what God said to him in Genesis 17. Walk before me and be blameless, Abram. I am the Lord your God. And he redeemed Abram into Abraham. And Isaac came from him. Seed of the woman by which Christ would come. In the same way, you can never, ever, ever mess up as bad as Peter did because you don't get to walk with Jesus in his physical form in the first place. Most of you aren't bold enough to declare I would never fall away. So what I want you to hear is that it's not that Peter is some sort of outlier, that Peter sets the standard that the worst of the worst could be restored. Now what does that mean for you? It means you, me, all of us can be restored and of some use in the kingdom regardless of what we've done. So the question this morning is, what would you expect from Jesus? If you had rejected him publicly, you've made all these bold statements that you didn't back up one whit, what would you expect him to say to you, and would you want to face him if you knew he were coming? How many of you <coughs> have made some bold proclamation that you didn't live up to and then you had to face the very people you'd made the bold proclamation to. How'd that go? 
if you were bold enough to actually face the people to whom you'd made the bold proclamation. What we're gonna see here is that there's so much grace in this that we just about can't bear it. There's so much grace in it that we try to explain it away. There's so much grace in it that we try to find some law to keep it in. And yet Jesus says, no, peace be with you. And then he says, do you love me more than these? So, with all that introduction, let's turn to the text, verses one through seven, John chapter 21. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that, it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. Now, this is a pretty interesting story given some of its just plainness, its ordinariness. What we see straight away is that yet again, Jesus reveals himself on his own terms. Now, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us again, as John is so wont to do, that Jesus is divine. Who else has the capacity to reveal themselves on their own terms? Do you? Sometimes I feel kind of like I might be able to because if I wear a hat in public, it's funny because you guys have no earthly idea who I am and I've seen you do some stuff I need to talk to some of y'all about. But that's not because I'm doing it. It just has to do with perception. We cannot reveal as we choose. We are revealed, right? So often we, we in our humanity can't do that. That's an act of divinity to be able to veil one's revelation or who one really is is for the divine only. So the fact that John tells us, here is a situation, this is now the third time that Jesus is revealing himself, it is on Jesus' own terms that he's doing it, but he's doing it according to the scripture because he had already told them, I will meet you in Galilee. And now you may be saying, well, this is in Galilee, this is the Sea of Tiberias. Well, Tiberias is just another name for Galilee. If you would, flip real quick in your Bibles to Matthew 26. Um, this is something that is not recounted in John, but uh, it's worth us taking our time to read. Uh, and actually has a pretty significant impact on the rest of the passage. This is where Jesus is telling him, I'm gonna see you after I rise again. And this makes a whole lot of sense as to why, why, what was their struggle. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now this was right after the very first, the very last Passover between them and the first Lord's Supper. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So anybody who ever says, Jesus never said anything about the resurrection right there, yes he did. How else was he gonna go before them to Galilee if he's not risen from the dead after he's just predicted his death? 
He goes on to say, but after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. And then Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the exact same. So here we see in this beautiful, hard, difficult moment that Jesus is telling him, hey, I'm, I'm gonna rise from the dead and I'm gonna go before you to Galilee. And here they are. They're not listening to what he's saying. They're too busy trying to proclaim themselves. In fact, what's so interesting about it is that they're actually denying that scripture is true because what Jesus just quoted was, was from the prophet. Now, I get these mixed up. I think it was Zechariah, the longer of the two. Zephaniah is the shorter one, I think. Don't charge me with that. But he's quoting scripture and they're denying it. That prophet was wrong. He doesn't know us. And how often do you do the same? How often do you say of scripture, that, 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 that Holy Spirit, he didn't know what he was talking about. He ain't never met me. He ain't never seen what I can do. He ain't never seen my fortitude. Oh, yes, he has. Yes, he has. And he loves you anyway. And that's good news to us. So here we see something that sets the stage for this passage. He'd already told them, and now he's shown up. But it's interesting. They don't yet know who he is, right? So they've been out fishing all night, just doing normal, ordinary stuff. They were fishermen, by the way. So they were just trying to provide for their family. I don't think this was kind of like a, Peter's like, hey, it's been a hard week. Uh, Jesus has been crucified. I denied him. It's been rough. I'm going fishing. I'm going to let off a little steam. Now, that's not how it worked back then. They were actually trying to provide for their families because they didn't know what was coming next. And after a long, hard night of doing work that was unfruitful, the dawn comes. There's a man standing on the shore who asked this question that you would find frustrating if you'd spent all night working and didn't have anything come from it. He says, y'all catch any fish? As if he couldn't see that there's no fish in the net, by the way. Why do you think he would ask such a penetrating question when it was obvious? They're like, no, we can catch any fish. He says, well, throw it off on the right side. You're going to find all kinds. And what does that tell us about who this man is? He is the Lord of creation who knows when even a sparrow drops to the ground, he knows where the fish are. Why is that good news to us that he knows exactly where the provision is? He knows everything we could possibly ever need. Here, these guys are expert fishermen, by the way. They spent all night and nothing came from it. They had done all they could do in their own effort. Jesus shows up in his resurrection and in a moment says, you guys were on the wrong side of the boat. All that you could need is on the other side. So they cast their nets out and they can't even hardly haul all this stuff in that comes in. So he, again, evidences his divinity as the one who is Lord of creation, the one who knows all. And then John, the one that Jesus loved, realizes in this moment, hey, there's only one person that can do this. That's the Lord. 
And Peter, always quick to move, finally got it right. He puts on his outer garment because he had been stripped either to the waist or all the way naked fishing. I don't know. I'm not advocating naked fishing. It's just something they did. Uh, So he puts on his outer garment. Some make a big issue out of that. Maybe it was because he knew he was going to stand before the Lord and didn't want to do so in his nakedness. I don't know. It doesn't make a whole lot of hay about this after that. Either way, what we do know is he put on his garment and he threw himself immediately into the sea and swam the 100 yards in the sea. Anybody ever swam 100 yards in the sea? Those, you guys are professional swimmers though. It's not fair. Um, It ain't easy, by the way. Swimming just 100 yards in calm water is one thing, but trying to do it in the sea is a whole other, especially when you're excited and now you've got this outer garment on. And so he throws himself into the sea because he can't wait to be with the Lord. And so here we see that the Lord is willing to provide. He's willing to step in the middle of their ordinariness and he's willing to show them his divinity. Praise God. Hear what Jean Venier says about this passage. In his book, Drawn into the Mystery of Jesus through the Gospel of John, the word became flesh in order to reveal a very human life rooted in the earth, in culture, in faith, and in loving relationships. Now, after the resurrection, we are back in Galilee in this simple life of togetherness and work. Why does the evangelist choose to tell this simple, touching story? As I read the Gospel of John again and again, I believe that he is telling us about the presence of the risen Jesus in our ordinary lives. The evangelist wants us to remember that Jesus meets us wherever we are. We do not have to do extraordinary things, but to love and serve others in the name of the risen Jesus. The Lord does. He shows up in the most ordinary places. And so often we're not looking for it. We're looking more for some sort of whiz-bang, mountaintop-type experience and the crazy thing is, he's been there all along. Every, every good thing you realize that comes to you comes from God the Father. Every good thing. And so he is always at work in his risenness. He is always present with us because of his spirit. And it's so close that the Bible describes it as being within us even. It is even closer than we know. Closer than our own breath. So, Let me ask you, do you often expect to encounter Jesus in the normal everydayness of your life, the ordinariness of your life? Are you even looking for him? And how might it affect our faith if we were able to interact with him on a more regular basis and see him more at work in all things? Instead of only questioning when something big comes up and he didn't show up like we thought he should have. Even more important, do you expect him to show up in the middle of your unfruitfulness? That that's the place where he would love to show up the most so he could say to you, I, am, I have a cattle on a thousand hills. I own it all and can provide for you in ways that you cannot even comprehend. Do you understand? And we've talked about this, uh, and I don't throw these numbers out for any particular reason, but in taking this job here, um, I took about a $40,000 pay cut. Now, no, no applause. Thank you very much. And the math shouldn't work. Like Susan and I have sat down, and every week we, we do this, we, we try to do this thing where we talk about how God has been good, and we just, we don't understand how the math works. And somehow, 
some way, the Lord of numerics, the Lord of actuarials, the Lord of all of these things, somehow, some way has ensured that we would not just barely get by, because you've seen me out. You, I'm not starving to death. I post pictures of food. We're not, we're not scraping by, and we don't owe very much in this world. The Lord has been good. And that's normal everydayness. Do you expect when you sit down to do the budget that the Lord would show up? That he cares about even something as simple as that, as important as that? Do you recognize that when he doesn't provide for something, that somehow, some way, that's for your greater good? And he's got something to teach you and say to you because he loves you. He loves you more than to grant you something that could destroy you or take you somewhere where you didn't really want to go. So, I want to challenge us as a congregation, begin to see the Lord at work and the ordinariness, the everydayness, our work, our play, our rest, our love, our failure, even more in our failure. How might that change how we recognize failure? I've told you guys, I am a wicked perfectionist who's never had the pleasure of being perfect at anything. In fact, just this morning, I kind of laughed as I was reviewing my notes, and I'm sure this, this is in your bulletin as well. There's, there's words just left out kind of here and there. It drives me crazy, by the way. But as I saw it this morning, it was almost as if the Lord was saying, even in this, I just want to remind you, you're not perfect, and I love you still. Something as simple as that, and you may be saying, you're over-spiritualizing the missing word do. I think you're under-spiritualizing everything. So let's not make that mistake. Let's recognize that the Lord longs to be with us always, even in the most ordinary of moments. Turn back to the text, if you would. Let's read verses 8 through 14. It says, The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about 100 yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and he gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Is it not amazing that Jesus would just be standing on the shore and just have breakfast ready? In his resurrection, it's like, wouldn't you expect something more magisterial? No, it was just something as simple as, look, I know you boys have been working all night, and I know it's been fruitless, and I know you're tired. Let me make you breakfast. Here again, we see that though Christ is the divine, he's also reminding us he is still yet the servant of all. How many of us recognize, especially husbands, when it has been a particularly long week for our wives, what do you, are you willing to do for nothing in return, by the way, to just alleviate a long and difficult and fruitless week? Vice versa, wives. Vice versa, children. How many of you serve your parents? Because listen, your internet, it is not yet free. We've not yet elected Bernie Sanders. Uh, a lot of your, that, that, that hot water that you enjoy so much for 45 minutes at a shot, that stuff ain't free. 
I mean, all, all that you have, none of it, none of it is actually free. So children, I want to challenge you. If you, are, uh, if you would recognize and show some gratitude toward your parents, how could, you, how could you be loving toward your parents and say to them from time to time, in the name of Jesus Christ, by the way, just as he would, here, I'll take some of the load. Instead of when they ask you to carry the trash 20 feet, not swim 100 yards in the ocean, that suddenly you've got to do calisthenics and you've got all the reason in the world not to walk 20 feet, right? I mean, how can we better appreciate one another? How can we better recognize, just as Jesus did, recognizing a long and fruitless time? It fits very well with what we talked about with Whitney. Whitney's ministry has not been fruitless here, by the way, but it can feel that way sometimes. Same thing for me as your pastor, same thing for the elders, there are times when all we get saddled for is all the times we're not there instead of any of the times that we were there. We are human after all and we do have families and we live in the same fallen world that you do and we are not more spiritual than you. We're not. And so it wouldn't hurt to sometimes have you pray for us and say thank you. I'm not begging for that for me as much as I am the rest of them and the deacons as well. All these chairs that got set up, who did that? Yeah, you don't know because we don't make a big issue out of it every week. They're just here when you get here. And you know how much fun it is to show up at 7.30 or 8 and set up chairs? Yeah, that's why you don't do it. So might you, if you've got some time, maybe it would be helpful for you to ask, hey, what can I do to help out to alleviate? Because I know it gets old doing this stuff week after week, time after time. Now, we can take the posture as I am sometimes wanting to do, given my Spartan nature. If we were in China, we wouldn't even be having this conversation, by the way. But we're not, we're in America. So we are having this conversation, and we do want to make sure that we appreciate one another. And so, so how can we better do what we do as a church in full unity instead of leaving it for everybody else to do, or at least, at least say thank you, even if you're like, I ain't showing up to do it, I don't care. At least say thank you to the ones who do. Find out who they are, find out their names, and bless them. Right? Because look at what Jesus did. He's just standing, he made breakfast. It's just such a, it seems like such an ordinary thing, but it's such a beautiful act. And not only does he make breakfast, but he says, hey, bring, bring in some of that that you just caught. I want you to join in the work that I am doing. I want you to participate with me so that you would be nourished and built up and encouraged. Bring some of what you've got because I provided it. And so he is welcoming them into this moment of servitude. He is welcoming them into this moment of celebration of his goodness. This is not something to be ignored or overly simplistic. So listen to what Herman Ritterboss says about this. Good old Dutch theologian. Only as the disciples bring fish that have just been caught does the meal prepared by Jesus achieve its full significance. Jesus makes the usual meal of bread and fish, which the disciples have so often shared with him, into a resurrection meal. Not only by sitting down with them as the risen one, but also by involving them in it as those who share in his resurrection power and as those who will continue his work on earth. 
That's something, that, a posture that we should have every time we do the Lord's Supper, which we'll do in just a few weeks. We should recognize that the Lord is asking us to participate in that, asking for us to recognize that he has provided it for us so that we would be strengthened to continue his mission. So let me ask you, what are some ways in which Jesus has invited you into the work that he's doing daily? <laughs> what are some ways in which just normal, everyday stuff. Does Jesus care about children? Yeah, how did he respond when the disciples were like, listen, these kids are being loud, they're causing problems, get them out of here. Jesus says, whoa, 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 bro. Let them come to me so I can bless them and enjoy them. So stay-at-home moms, dads, Working moms, working dads, know that in you serving and loving your children, Jesus has welcomed you into something that he loves and he does. For those of you who serve in any way, shape, or form in, in teaching in schools, whether that's homeschool or private school or Christian school or Montessori school or three-day-a-week school, three-day-a-week school uh, or public school, I don't care where it is. Know that Jesus loved to teach. He loved to shape. He loved to, to build up. You are being welcomed into that which Jesus has done and continues to do. For those of you who work in any way, shape, or form in anything, know that it is because Jesus worked First, and in a way that could be fruitful, that you have anything that you have, whether it's nursing or physical therapy or chiropractic or doctor or actuary or CPA, does it matter? Do the numbers matter to a company? You better believe they do. What happens when you put the decimal in the wrong place? For you CPAs, just try it for one tax season. Let's see how it goes. Tell me how it goes. These things matter. The ordinary things matter. Jesus cares about what we do. The ordinariness of life. And he is welcoming into that which he has already done. And he actually gives it fruit bearing. Yes, it is what we do in a fallen world. Yes, sometimes the ground is thorns and thistles and seems to fight right back at us. But that is not the final say, is it? No, the fall did not have the final say. Let's turn back to the text and look at verses 15 through 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. 
What we see here is Peter, who had been so wrong at the top of his lungs in, in very public settings, as we read in Matthew, he is being restored publicly. Now, why in the world would Jesus ask him three times, the one who knows all, why? Why three times? How many times did Peter deny him? He wanted to make sure that Peter understood beyond a shadow of a doubt, not that Peter loved Jesus, but that Jesus loved Peter. See, Jesus is not so worried about what Peter thinks or does as much as what he knows and who he knows in his restoration so that he can be of use now to the kingdom. Now, I'm not gonna get into a bunch of language stuff here because there are folks who make a lot of hay out of the fact that two different words for love are used, agape and I think it's phileo, but you also have some different terms that are used for feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. So John was known to sometimes use varied words, not for any particular point other than to get people's attention. So I, I don't think there's enough there to actually make an entire sermon out of, as some have done, the difference in the terms for love, because actually it's been discovered that in the Greek, it's not that big of a difference, according to D.A. Carson in the book Exegetical Fallacies. So be careful when you read stuff like that and you get all excited about the Greek and all these little different terms, you could lose actually what's being said in the big picture. That Jesus is making sure that Peter knows what you have done does not keep you from me. Your denial is but an opportunity for me to show you the newness of life that comes from the resurrection alone. Do you love me? So here Peter is publicly restored in this beautiful way. And then he goes on to basically say to him, you, you will become a fisher of men. In Matthew 4, when he first called Peter, and he tells him to follow him, he says, I'm gonna make you fishers of men. And what's interesting is the fact that Jesus now says to him again, now, follow me. And notice what he had just told him. He just told him the way in which he was gonna die, which is interesting, because remember, Peter said, even if I have to die, I will not fall away from you. And Jesus says, well, you're going to. According to history, and we're not real sure about it, Peter was crucified, and he actually requested, again, be careful with this, but supposedly he requested to be crucified upside down so that he would not in any way, shape, or form be confused with the Lord. We do know Peter was martyred. The other details are not necessarily as important. They're kind of cool. But we do know the Lord told him, you will die for me. And God will be glorified in your death as he was in mine. Now, that should, if you ever go back and read 1 Peter now, that should actually bring so much to the surface why he talks so much about suffering. Because he believed what the Lord had said. In fact, I think it would do us good. Let's flip to 1 Peter 5 and read verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> Just to see Peter's understanding of this and where it comes to. This is a very... Um, uh, significant text also for those of us who are elders. 1 Peter 5, 1 says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ 
as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the, at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore and confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Do you now hear the weight of those words? The man who wrote those things after hearing and seeing what the risen Lord had done, those words have weight. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter is able to write those things because he has seen it and he passes along the same truth to us. He's essentially saying to us as elders, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. He is saying to us, do it because you know of what Christ has already done and will do at his return. May none of us ever, ever use anything within the church for our own gain. Woe be unto us. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says about this passage. Christ's command was meant to teach Peter and the whole church this mighty lesson, that usefulness to others is the grand test of love. And working for Christ, the great proof of really loving Christ, it is not loud talk and high profession. I, can I just pause for a second and tell you, as a pastor, how often I hear this kind of nonsense, this high talk and this, this grandiose profession where someone will say in one breath, you know, I just, I just want to be the servant of all and let me tell you how I've done that for years and years and years and years and years and why that should excite you because now I'm coming to your church and I can really help out. It is not even impetuous, spasmodic zeal and readiness to draw the sword and fight. It is steady, patient, laborious effort to do good to Christ's sheep scattered throughout this sinful world, which is the best evidence of being a true-hearted disciple. This is the real secret of Christian greatness. Let me say this, as long as I am here, no one will become an elder in this church who has not already exemplified this. I don't care of your business acumen. I don't care of your leadership zeal. I don't care of your knowledge of superlapsarianism. I don't care about any of those things at all. What I want to see is a man broken by Jesus who is willing to 
Shepherd the sheep, tend the sheep, feed the sheep in his brokenness, as Peter would have us to do. That's strong, ain't it? Sounds like I got all dad on you again. But you need that because otherwise you are being turned over to wolves. And you shouldn't be turned over to wolves because they will leave nothing and devour everything. So how has Christ restored you so that you don't have to live in shame and conserve the glory of God? How public has been your restoration? I think I've shared this story with you all before, but there was a time where I had to step down as an elder through no no particular sin of my own. My family was just going through an incredibly difficult time. And it was one of the hardest moments I think I've ever been through because it looked like I was giving up that which I had um, saw the Lord calling me to and, and I didn't know if there would ever be any restoration. And I remember the first Sunday where I sat and I had been removed and feeling the weight of that. And that lasted for about a year. And everybody thought we were leaving because I'd get mad because I, and I wouldn't, I stepped down, although they did say we were about to remove you. So it was about to get nasty. So it was kind of, ah, chicken, I won. And so, uh, so it was incredibly hard. And, and the Lord did this amazing thing. Guess what day on which I returned and preached? Father's Day the following year. Is that, is that minuscule? Is that just too ordinary to be spiritual? You don't think that God was saying, I am restoring you in more ways than you, and it's public? Not because I'm me, because I, I mean, there were plenty of reasons I'm sure that I shouldn't even come back, probably. Plenty of reasons I probably shouldn't even be up here, to be honest with you, if, if sin has the final say and not the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and the return. So for many of you, the Lord has done the same. He has said to you and given you opportunity to be recog- for it to be recognized publicly, you've been restored and I love you. How awesome is that? When, it, when in essence, what we would expect is for Jesus to make an example of us publicly. But does he do that? Is that what Jesus died to do? No, that'll happen in judgment. The public examples will come in judgment, by the way. So don't hear me saying that Jesus doesn't bring judgment. But do hear me say that he is waiting and tarrying because the Lord God loves us, 2 Peter 3. So what should we learn from this passage? John 21, 1 through 19 teaches us that Jesus in his resurrection, number one, shows up in ordinary life events, including our failures. (laughs) Pay attention. Look for him. Celebrate him, welcome him, enjoy him. Second, he invites us to participate in his ordinary work as he continues, even now, to be the servant of all. Because right now, while he didn't make you an omelet this morning, he is interceding for you that you would hear his love for you. Third, that he restores us to God and to his mission. He loves us so much that even though we've proven to be such rapscallions that he would use us anyway as he has restored us. Listen to what Charles Haddon Spurgeon says from his sermon, Do I Love the Lord or No? What an interesting title. The question Jesus propounds is of such vital importance that all other questions may be set aside till this one question is positively settled. 
lovest thou me? Hence, beloved, I infer that it is of infinitely more consequence for me to know that I love Christ than it is to know the meaning of the little horn or the ten toes or the four great beasts. All scripture is profitable to those who have grace to profit by it, but wouldest thou both save thyself and them that hear thee, thou must know him and love him to whom patriarchs, prophets, and apostles bear witness that there is salvation in none other and no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. Christ alone, through faith alone, and grace alone. Know that Jesus longs to be a part of the everydayness, the ordinariness of your life. And he has loved and restored you publicly because of that. And he longs for you to participate in what he is doing. And he longs for you to know how much he loves you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Jesus pursues us even into the ordinary. He pursues us into our failure. He restores and loves us because you love us. Thank you that we're not being saved from you, but to you, so that we could enjoy and participate in the very mission to which you have unfurled in this broken and fallen world. Thank you, Lord, that you allow even the ordinary day-to-day stuff to matter, that even it is pregnant with those things that are spiritual. There's nothing, no square inch of this world, as Abraham Kuyper said, that is not yours. So let us become far more aware of where you're present than always complaining about the places where we think you're absent. Help us to join in the mission. Help us to edify, encourage, and love one another well so that you would be honored and glorified. In Christ's name, amen.